Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. So we are in uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing on. We're looking at Jesus's Galilean ministry and really his power. You know, the image uh, and the theme that we're using for the book of Mark is the cross and the crown of Jesus. So this is moving towards his death and his substitutionary work on the cross for us. But also we're looking at his power in the world. And so that's what we're seeing right now. Jesus being king over the universe. And he's expressing his power through miracles, through exorcisms, through healings. And, and then we come to this like incredible passage. And when we first read it, I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to be straight up with you. It's going to seem disjointed at first. There's kind of bookends to the story about a healing of a little girl. And then there's another healing kind of sandwiched in the middle. And you kind of look at it like, why in the heck is this here? But when we look just underneath the surface, we see that this these stories are kind of powerfully intertwined. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Mark 5, starting in verse 21. Um, the text will be on the screen, but I'd encourage you to turn there today, just as we're going to be looking at how this text kind of fits together. So uh, Mark 5, starting in verse 21, um, I'm going to begin. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it's some narrative and it'll hopefully flow well. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you you see this crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he followed, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? 
The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talethia kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are powerful, that your priorities are so different than we can understand or imagine. I pray that you would open and illuminate your word to us today. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us see how you speak a new identity over us today. In your name, amen. So when you become a parent, as I recently have, 13 months ago, you saw my little girl up front here, everybody knows her, Autumn. Uh, and uh, so when, when you become a, a parent, they don't tell you that you kind of get a little crazy sometimes, okay? And I can't even blame it on the lack of sleep, okay? But I just begin to say some of the craziest things, all right? And one of the crazy things that I call my daughter, we call her like sweetheart and honey, but one of the things that I call my daughter is tiny chicken. I don't know why. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. It's crazy. And I can't, again, I can't even blame it on a lack of sleep. I'm actually getting quite a good amount of sleep given the fact that we have a 13 month old, but we call her tiny chicken and we've called her tiny chicken like from the time that she was a tiny chicken, time that she was a baby, right? And so we even bought this and keep it in her room and sometimes even put it in her crib. So I'm going to put this over here so we can all see the tiny chicken. Um, but yeah, we actually even do these crazy things like we sing songs to her. So we take like modern pop songs and we'll like insert her name and random facts about her. So to the tune of Gangnam Style, you know where it says, ooh, you know that part? So we say, ooh, sassy baby, ooh, 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 And I don't know why. She likes, I guess, the deep voice or whatever. And it's just absolutely, ins- it literally is insane. And if anyone saw the songs that, especially my wife has like a photographic memory of songs lyrics and so she can on the fly like like Eminem she like raps to our my child including these random facts about her and it's so hilarious and like I said I don't know what happens like what switch goes on in your brain when you become a parent but we've been doing this for 13 months and it's kind of crazy but I think really what it is is it's motivated by this just intense love for my daughter right I just love her I love her so much, and you kind of don't even know what to do with that love sometimes, and you kind of, again, get a little crazy. But as I was prepping for my sermon with you, and you're going to see hopefully in the next few minutes why, um, I just had this incredibly special, sweet time with Autumn, especially when I went to wake her up on Friday morning. But we come to this story, this kind of unified story of healing and Jesus's power in the text. So we're going to go through three movements today. We're going to talk about the tension the transformation, and the truth. That's what we're going to talk about. The tension, the transformation, and the truth. So uh, we come to this story. Jesus is in Galilee, and we see that there is the imminent death of Jairus's daughter, and Jesus is on the move. So he comes to Jesus, and he says, my daughter is sick. 
she is on the verge of death. Please just come and heal her. And it's almost like he's in like an EMS or kind of like an ambulance, right? Like he's like on the move. And this is actually quite common for Jesus. He's in these contexts very often. He's in the middle of trauma. He's in the middle of difficulty. He's in the middle of oppression. He's in the middle of demonic oppression where he's casting out demons. He's in the middle of healings. Like, and I just almost as an it's okay, it's a little early in the sermon to do an aside, but let's do an aside for 30 seconds. Um, Let's just think about this for a second. Like Jesus is the son of God and he oftentimes is going someplace and changes course, right? And oftentimes he finds himself in the middle of conflict and people don't like Jesus. And guess what? Jesus was perfect. And guess what you and I are? We're not perfect, okay? So this means that when we find ourselves in the middle of conflict and difficulty, that's not always a bad thing. Jesus walked completely in the will of his father and was in the middle of conflict and difficulty and stress and struggle. And so that's not always a bad thing. So again, it's a little early in the sermon for a side note, but that's the side note is that Jesus was perfect. He was oftentimes in the middle of traumatic moments and that's okay because he's bringing the gospel and grace to bear in those moments. But Going back to this idea, Jairus comes. He says, my daughter is dying. Help me. Just come, please. And so Jesus says, okay. And they're on the move. And and my mind can often wonder, and I don't know about you guys who are parents, but what my life would be like without my kid. And, and it's heartbreaking, right? I just think, oh my gosh, like what would my life be like if I didn't have Autumn in here? And it's just a terrible thought, but sometimes it kind of creeps creeps into my head. And And I just want us to sit with this for a second. Imagine the heartbreak of Jairus. Imagine what he must have been going through. His, his daughter, who we find out later is 12, his 12-year-old daughter, who he had cared for for 12 years from a baby. He's seen her grow. He's seen her move. I think about just the past 13 months of my own life, times that by 12 more, right? All of a sudden, she's dying. And imagine what he must have been going through, the heartbreak, the desperation, the panic, the fear that Jairus, that Jairus had to get to to violate this Jewish opposition against Jesus. Jairus was like like the president of the synagogue, okay? He was a ruler. He was like the president of the synagogue. He was was a spiritual leader in their community, and Jesus was challenging the religious authority of that moment. So so the Jews were in opposition to Jesus. He's violating all of his social status and position. He was a wealthy man coming to Jesus, falling on his knees in front of him, saying, please heal my daughter. He's begging Jesus. He's given up all dignity, all status, all title. Nothing else matters but his daughter getting healed. And so Jesus says, okay. And so he's walking. All right, let's start moving. We got to go. She's dying. She's on the verge of death. And then this woman touches Jesus' garment to be healed. And then everything grinds to a halt. It's like we're in this rapid pace. If you think about it like a movie, we're in this rapid pace, scene, scene, Jairus falls. Jesus says, all right, let's go. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of this crowd and throng of people, Jesus just suddenly stops. Wait, who touched me? And then everything like goes into slow motion. Now you can imagine the tension of Jairus. My daughter is dying. What are you doing? Let's go. Let's keep moving. We got, we got limited time here, Jesus. But Jesus has different priorities. And we are intentionally meant, this story, it seems like I said, when you first read it, it seems like, why is this weird story in the middle? It just seems like disjointed. But we're meant to draw a comparison between Jairus 
and this woman. So let's take a look first at Jairus. Jairus is a man in a culture that values men and devalues women. He's healthy. He's obviously able to walk and move. He's perfectly fine. There's nothing that seems like he has some sort of physical ailment. He is considered moral, right? Because he is a religious leader. He is, and his job is actually part of his role in the synagogue is to remain ceremoniously clean. He has to remain ceremoniously clean to go into the temple and fulfill the roles as a ruler of the synagogue. He's probably wealthy. He has means. He has servants. He has people coming in and out. And he's well-connected. He's well-respected in the community. Now, we see this is who his daughter is dying. And there's a priority here. We need to take care of his daughter. But then this woman comes in and stops everything. Well, let's look at the woman. Let's see what her what her status is. First off, she is a woman in a culture that devalues women. She's sick. And here's the deal. She was sick with a socially disqualifying illness. She had gynecological bleeding. And in normal circumstances, this puts her in the unclean category according to Jewish laws and customs. And here's the deal. Not only is she sick, but she is ongoingly sick, which means that in that culture, they thought if you were ongoingly sick, this means that you or someone that you know did something wrong. So they considered that she was immoral. We see elsewhere when there's a man who was born blind, the disciples come to Jesus and say, who sinned, this man or his parents? So there wasn't a question in the culture as to whether or not you were immoral. The question is, who's immoral, right? So this woman was considered immoral. Because of the Jewish laws and customs, and because of the nature of her illness, she was considered ceremoniously unclean. And this had dramatic effects to her life. She wasn't allowed in the temple. She wasn't allowed into corporate worship. She was not allowed to even be touched by anyone. This is what that means or else it would make the person who touched her ceremoniously unclean for a period of time. She was poor. She had been wealthy, but she spent all of her money to get doctors and everything that happened just made it worse. And of course, can we blame her? Of course, we'd do the same thing if we were sick. We'd be spending all of our money. What, is it, what does money matter when our health is gone? And she was isolated in every single way imaginable. She was isolated socially. She was isolated physically. She was isolated morally. She was isolated spiritually. She was isolated economically. She was isolated relationally. And place yourselves in her shoes for a moment. Think about where you were in 2011. That was 12 years ago. Now imagine where you were in 2011. How old you were, where you lived, what you were doing. Think about where you were in 2011. Now I want you to think that since 2011 till today, you have never been touched. You've never been hugged. You've never been cared for. You've never had someone like affectionately invite you into their home. Nothing. Since 2011, you couldn't go to church, you couldn't worship. There's nothing you could do. You were completely isolated and you were deeply ill and it was getting worse and you became poor and there's nothing you could do about it. And your whole life is falling apart around you. And anyone who's suffered from a chronic illness understands this that you feel completely powerless and then you can't even have a community around you to help you. This, this is this woman. Imagine that. 
And what happens when she touches the hem of Jesus' garment? The first tension is that Jesus stops for her. He stops for her. He stops for the outcast. He stops for the person that has been alone for years. And the disciples have zero idea what's going on, as they often do, okay? In Mark, this is not uncommon. The disciples have no clue, and their mouth is specifically made for their foot to go in it, okay? Because they're constantly saying dumb things. Look at what they say in verse 31. Jesus is like, who touched me? Because he knows, he wants to meet this woman. He wants to meet her. He wants to connect with her. And what do his disciples say? You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? They're speaking in sarcasm. Dummies. (laughs) But look at what Jesus does. Jesus makes a male church leader whose child is on the verge of death to wait for an unclean female who had already been healed. Why? So that Jesus could absolve her of her sins and encourage her in her newfound faith. That is a different priority that Jesus has, isn't it? (laughs) He's completely different. He makes a male religious leader who was well-respected in the community, whose daughter was dying in an acute situation, wait and stop for a female who, guess what, had a chronic illness, not an acute one, who had already been healed. Jesus has completely different priorities and nobody understands it. So maybe, again, side note, it's a little bit farther on the sermon, so this makes more sense. All right, side note, when God has, makes, does weird things, when God delays when we want him to go quickly, Oftentimes he is doing it because there is a deeper priority. There is a deeper reason that we don't always understand. And guess what? Because we are not God, we can't see what he sees. And so oftentimes when we think this has to happen now and it can't happen, oftentimes God is doing a deeper work underneath the surface with things that are far more important than we understand. Okay, so our priorities are not his priorities. So it's important for us to remember that. Okay, diversion complete. The second tension happens here. The first tension, Jesus stops for the woman. Second tension, Jairus' daughter dies. How in the world could Jesus let this happen? What in the world is going on? And what we see, and this gets us to the second movement here, is the transformation. What we see is that Jesus is telling us so much about both his priorities and his power to transform every single person in this situation. He has different priorities and he has a deeper power. So what we see first, who is transformed? Well, first, the woman's identity is transformed. Look at what he says to her in verse 34. And he said to her, what? He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What is he saying here? Look at what Jesus, do we see it? Do you see it? There's another daughter. It's not about one daughter, it's about two It's about the daughter of Jairus, but it's also about this woman. What does he say to her daughter? He stops to give her a new identity. This is powerful. A social outcast, isolated, poor, sick, unclean, marginalized woman is considered Jesus's daughter in his family. Who was advocating for this woman for 12 years? No one. She was alone. She was isolated. Nobody was fighting for her. Who's fighting for Jairus' daughter? Everybody. Everybody in Jairus' household is around his daughter, trying to help her. Servants running, trying to get. Jairus comes out, falls on his face. We see Jesus fighting for Jairus' daughter, moving in that direction. And yet this woman who had been forgotten, what does Jesus say? He says, daughter, 
And what we see is that that's, that's her identity all along. And the priority for Jesus was to remind her, was to show her her new identity, her true identity. You're my daughter too. I am fighting for you. Do you see how important that is? Do you see how valuable that is? Do you see the priority of Jesus to not just say it's about your healing, but it's also about your identity. And I'm going to stop the world to speak to you. This shows us the need of the true woman and how Jesus is eager to meet that need. And we see that Jesus is compassionate enough to care about the woman's deepest need of her soul. And we see that her faith is on display. And we're going to see this contrasted with Jairus' lack of faith. It says, what does she say in verse 28? For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This is what she said. I just need to get around him. I don't even need to meet him. Don't even need to see him. I just need to be with Jesus and then I will be healed. This is deep faith. And she risks everything to do it. Jesus speaks to the woman. He transforms, he secures her soul. Because why? She had little faith. That's all she needed. The Bible says faith like a mustard seed. See, the woman is transformed. But we see that Jairus' faith is also transformed because as Jesus is speaking this powerful world, word over this woman, daughter, daughter, you're healed. What, what happens? Well, these, the servants come to Jairus and say, your daughter's dead, don't bother Jesus anymore. And can you imagine what Jairus must have been feeling? I can't even begin to imagine the well of pain that he must have fallen into in that moment. His daughter, his little girl, 12 years old, dead, completely gone. Can you imagine the heartbreak that he experienced? His deepest fear completely realized. So Jarius is just sinking into the pit of despair in this moment. Grief welling over him. And what does Jesus say? Look at what it says. It says, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Okay, this is disjointed, right? This doesn't match. Where's the empathy here? But here's the deal. There's even something in, more interesting here. Over, the word overhearing is not a good translation. Um, the word overhearing literally means to hear and then disregard, to ignore. <laughs> so let's read that again. But ignoring <laughs> what they said Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. What is, this what is this teaching us here? Is that Jesus can heal a dead girl just as much as he can heal an alive woman. She touched his garment. Instant healing. This, this doesn't threaten Jesus at all. He goes to the point where he gets to the house and says, she's asleep. It's like you got to just nudge her awake. That's what death is to the son of God. That's what death is to the God of the universe who created life and is life himself walking on earth. That's what it is. So we see the power of Jesus in this interaction with Jairus. That's like, don't fear. I believe. That's all you got to do, man. <laughs> like this is nothing for Jesus. Death is nothing for him. But what we see here also, this teaches us something else. Why does he say, do not fear, only believe? He doesn't say, don't have unbelief. You would think it would say, don't doubt, only believe, right? Because we uh, associate that as the opposite. 
But we see, and Tim Keller helps us with this, the opposite of saving faith is not uncertainty. It's actually fear. When people say, I wish I had your faith. No, I wish I had your confidence. That's really what they're saying. <laughs> the opposite of faith is not is not uncertainty. You can actually walk and have faith in Jesus and still be uncertain about your life. Because guess what? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, today, when we get in the car and drive away from the YMCA. The opposite of faith is not actually uncertainty or even questioning. This is why we say at Redeeming Hope, one of our, one of our values is that we want you to come and say with questions, you can question God and still have faith. The opposite of faith is fear. It's being scared. It's saying this won't happen. That's what it is. We see that Jesus is powerful enough, again, to heal a dead girl just as much as an alive woman. But he speaks to Jairus. And what does he do? He transforms, he reorients his focus away from his fears and onto belief, true belief. But then we see the next person in the story that's transformed as Jesus is walking, he comes to the house and we see the girl's life is transformed. And this is what he sees. When he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And we already see that this is what happens when the son of God and the author of life walks into the room of your life. Things that are dead come alive again. There is complete and utter power with a touch from Jesus. But they respond with laughter. They're incredulous. How in the world can he say that? She's clearly dead. And Jesus walks into the room, and this is what he does. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithia kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, this has an, arise does not mean resurrect from the dead. You want to know what it means? You can probably guess when he says she's sleeping. It means wake up. Now, it's a little hard to get in the, from, from the Greek. That's actually why Mark kept the original language in here. That's why they said Talithia kumi instead of just little girl, arise. Why? Because it's, uh, it's what you would say to your daughter when you walk into the room. And Talithia Kumi is literally saying, hey, sweetie, hey, honey, it's a pet name. That's what he calls her. He calls her a pet name. Hey, little chicken, it's time to wake up. It's like what I do with my daughter. That's what I do when I go into the room. I did it on Friday. <laughs> so I was thinking about this sermon. I said, hey, little chicken, it's time to wake up. Well, doesn't that add so much to this? Like, this is how he sees her. Hey, little chicken, <laughs> it's time to get up. That's what death is to the Son of God. <laughs> what does this tell us? Well, this tells us first about Jesus. It tells us so many things, but just two. It tells us about his power, and it tells us about his parenthood. First off, if you have Jesus in your life, death is like sleeping. <laughs> Like, that's what it is. Like, you can laugh in the face of death. Truly. They were scoffing at Jesus, but Jesus was like, she's just asleep. You can laugh in the face of death. You can have confidence when there's suffering and pain in your life because of his power. And we also see this parenthood. The true parent will never fail you. He's a good dad. And this is actually your father's heart for you. Hey, little chicken. <laughs> He doesn't say that to somebody he's angry to. He doesn't say that to somebody he's upset at. He doesn't say that to somebody he's disappointed in. He says it to, to the sons and daughters that he loves. 
And this is what he does when he comes into our life. He says, hey, little chicken, it's time to get up. Come on, let's go. Let's have a day together. So we see three transformations. Jesus speaks to the woman. He transforms, he secures her soul. Why? She had faith. A little modicum of it, a little bit of it. Jesus speaks to Jairus. He he reorients his focus. He needed faith. And so Jesus helps him in this moment. He says, hey, don't fear. Jesus is with Jairus too, even in his lack of faith. And Jesus speaks to the little girl and he resurrects her life. What did she have? She had an advocate. She wasn't doing anything. She was dead. So that's the transformations. Now, what's the truth? The true story is this. We think the story is about the little girl and the woman interrupting it. That's at first when I read it. I was like, okay, little girl getting healed. And then there's this weird kind of parentheses in the story. Or we can think that it's about a lonely and sick woman being healed. But actually, my friends, the true story is the same as every other story in the Bible. It's about Jesus. The true story is about Jesus. And the woman and the girl are pointing us to the deeper truth of the gospel that says Jesus loves us. And when we place our faith in him, he transforms us. It's just that simple. He loves us. He loves you. And when you place faith in him, not in what he can do for you, he transforms us. He changes us. And then he speaks a new word of identity over us. It's just like the woman says, daughter, I'm your advocate. Just like the little girl saying, hey, tiny chicken, time to get up. So who are we in the story? Um, It's fun. We're everybody but Jesus in the story. Okay, so there's just everybody but the Son of God. So Jarius, who are we? Some of, sometimes we're Jarius. And this is everybody at some juncture, okay? This is me at different junctures in my life. Some of us are like Jarius, pleading with Jesus, struggling to believe, and totally failing at it, okay? Like the horror, the sickness, the struggle of our lives can sometimes make us struggle with fear, with deep fear, with a lack of faith. This is sometimes we're Jairus. Sometimes we're the disciples. We're scoffing at God and at his pace. Because when God delays, we doubt. That's our natural, that's my natural inclination. I don't know about you guys. But when God delays, sometimes I doubt, I question. I'm wondering, what are you doing right now? But when God doesn't make sense, a lot of times we get cynical too, right? So we can either doubt or engage with cynicism. And that's what the disciples have. Sometimes we're the woman. We're seeking to find healing from the inexhaustible sickness of sin and suffering. And so we're coming to Jesus with faith, right? Sometimes we really are coming to him genuinely full of faith and saying, pressing in in prayer, pressing in towards him and saying, God, help me, (laughs) right? And, And sometimes we're the little girl. Sometimes we're just completely dead, unable to move. My wife literally has, has been a nurse and was a nurse for about a decade. She has literally brought back people from the dead using CPR. And, and actually, she has this little talk when we do Gospel for Life, our, our theological training and orientation to the gospel, and Rachel is able to join us. Um, she always tells this story, and she says, uh, do you want to know what percentage of input a dead person gives you in them coming back to life? Zero. <laughs> Nothing. They're just laying there. They're dead. <laughs> they don't give anything. They don't contribute anything to the process of them coming back alive again. Okay? And Rachel has seen it. Eyeball to eyeball has seen it. So sometimes we're like the little girl. We can't, we don't have faith. (laughs) We're struggling. We don't know what the heck to do. And, but Jesus comes to us and resurrects us (laughs) and says, hey, tiny chicken, time to wake up. So what do we do in the story? Well, when I was 17, I owned the best car 
of my life. It was a 1991 Toyota Camry. Okay, there's a picture. Is oh, did did it not work? Is the second one? Can we hit the second one? The interior. The interior is not there either. Oh goodness! All right, I need you to like literally right now look up a 1991 blue Toyota Camry. Okay, it's the boxy version of it. Right before it was the, the more bubbly. I'm a car guy. It was the best car I ever had in my life, guys. It was fantastic. When this thing shut, it was like, it's not this, this, this chintzy crap cars that we drive today. Okay, this thing slammed. There was like metal in it. Okay, and I love this car. And I'd still be driving it today if I wasn't a moron. But I, I got it for 400 bucks when I was 17 years old. And this thing was awesome, man. It was pristine. It was amazing. Okay, 91 Toyota Camry. And I was driving like probably maybe two to 2,500 miles a month back and forth commuting to college. I was 19. I was about ready to graduate. And it was bonkers, guys. It was absolutely insane. And I was just so busy. And I didn't get the oil change. And I could tell I needed one. And you can tell. You can see where this is going. Okay, 19-year-old Josh didn't get the oil change. Then it started to knock a little bit. I was like, oh, it'll be okay. I just, let me graduate, okay? And I was on Route 50 in Maryland, driving down the road going 60 miles an hour, and I hear a boom. And I thought someone rear-ended me. And so I look in my rearview mirror, and there are nuts and bolts and screws and belts literally riddling the highway behind me, Okay. It's like a 007 movie where he hits the button and the tacks fall behind him. Like, that's what happened on Highway 50. I shot a rod right through my engine. Blew the engine. It was completely ruined. It was terrible. If I would have gotten an oil change, I promise you, I'd still be driving that car to this day. I really would. Like, this car was awesome. I still want to find the 91 Camry and, like, redeem this experience. But here's the deal. All I needed was an oil change. That's all it needed. It was a perfectly fine car, and I didn't realize the need for it. I knew I needed it, right? But I didn't really know I needed it. I didn't know how bad I needed it until the rod shot through the engine, and I see nuts and bolts and screws and everything flying apart in this car on Route 50, right? And isn't that the same way with faith in Christ? Isn't that the same way with Christ? Like, we know. Like, you wouldn't be here at church on a Sunday morning, unless someone literally dragged you here, you wouldn't be here unless you knew in some way, shape, or form that you need intimacy with God. And we need Jesus to some way, shape, or form. But how often do we forget the importance of it? How often do we forget the consistency of it? How often do we forget the necessity of true saving faith? And then all of a sudden we find ourselves on the side of the highway with a smoking engine of our life. <laughs> and we're like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? I'm, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Because I had the answer right in front of me. I just didn't see how important it was. My friends, the truth is this. We need only come to Jesus and we will be healed. That's the truth. He's here. He loves you. He's your father. He's your friend. So you're joining us today. And you look over the course of your life. And, and you have not been able to identify a moment, a place in time where you've put a stake in the ground, where you've, where you've chosen to follow Jesus where you've actually said, I make you Lord and King over my life. I come underneath your crown, your Lordship, your Kingship. If you haven't done that yet, let me tell you, what God's telling you today is he's looking at you, and what is he saying? You know what I'm going to say. Little chicken, it's time to get up. That's what he's saying to you today. See, in Jewish customs, uncleanliness 
was like a crucial factor in their religion. We already kind of talked about that. Ceremony is the unclean. Um, you couldn't touch dead animals. You couldn't touch unclean people. You couldn't, you couldn't eat unclean food. You couldn't even eat with an unbeliever or a Gentile, right? Or all of a sudden, you would be completely isolated. When you were unclean, you were isolated, you were alone, you were on the outside. And we see, of course, this woman was there for 12 years. But here's the truth of the gospel. This is what Jesus is drawing us to. The truth is that we're all born unclean. We're all on the outs. And we're all on the outside. And, and there's nothing, just like this woman for 12 years, just like if that, that ruler touched something that was unclean, there's nothing that you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do but encounter Jesus. <laughs> and it's so interesting in this text because look at the physical touch of Christ. What does he do? The woman touches Jesus. What does that do? She's unclean. She touches Jesus, Jesus' garment. What does that do to Jesus? It makes him unclean. <laughs> you see where we're going with it? And what does Jesus do when he walks into the room? with the little chicken. What is the first thing he does to a dead girl? He grabs her hand. <laughs> he voluntarily makes himself ceremoniously unclean so that she could be resurrected. Jesus automatically disqualified himself from the temple. He disqualified himself from intimacy with God the moment that that physical touch happened. See where we're going with this? On the cross, Jesus crawled to his death to not only touch uncleanliness, but to fully embrace it so that you and I could run into our salvation. On the cross, Jesus laid down into our bed of sorrow and sin. What? Why? So that we could rise up from our bed of sorrow and sin into freedom and newness of life. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we could become the righteousness of God in him. My question to you today is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And if you do, today, right now, during the time of communion that we are about to engage with, put the stake in the ground. <laughs> Choose to follow him. Say, you are Lord and King, and I submit my life and faith, and you are the object of my faith from now on. Now, for those of us who have done that, God doesn't just want to heal you. He wants to transform your identity in his presence. So this is why we consistently, as followers of Jesus, spend time with him. Come, that's what he wants to tell you. He's compassionate towards you. When you sin, he loves you. When you suffer, he's with you. When you're struggling, he understands you. He truly does understand you. And so this is why we have to consistently make a pattern of coming to him. Why? Not because of some guilt or rule or law, or you got to read the Bible again, you know, got to do my quiet time. No, you come to him because in his presence, you're transformed. And what does he continually speaks to you? He says, daughter, he says, son, he says, little chicken, <laughs> come, come with me. That's what he does for us. And how is this possible? My friends, all of this is possible because of Jesus's work on the cross. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.